Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to NCF. Uh, for those of you who are visiting us for the first time, welcome, welcome, welcome. Or for the second and third, I want to say welcome yet again. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my uh, joy and privilege to share with you God's Word. Our passage for today comes to us from the book of Acts, and we're going to read chapters 2, verses 42 to 47. Please follow along with me as I read to you now God's Word. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's give thanks to God and ask for his blessing. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you'll be with us as we have come to hear your word. Lord, we have spent these past six days encountering all the things that make the world so hard sometimes and all the things that make us so frustrated with ourselves and the people around us. And yet, God, you have promised that when we gather together in the name of your son, Jesus, that you would be present among us as well as your son and your Holy Spirit, our great triune God. Oh, Lord, where would we be without your presence in our lives? Father, especially now as we come to you weary, tired, tattered, and torn from all the ways in which the world has tossed us back and forth, we ask now that you would settle our hearts and sharpen our minds and quicken our spirits so that we could receive everything, everything that you want us to receive on this glorious Lord's Day. We pray that today's portion that comes from your word will be something that we would relish and treasure deep in our hearts, irregardless of how we may see it immediately applying to our lives or not. We pray that we would treasure the word of God in all of its fullness and that we would have it deep within us so that it could bear fruit in our lives for the good of those around us. Oh God, would you please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You know, it goes without saying that human behavior can be quite annoying, right? Certain behaviors of humanity can be absolutely quite annoying. And one particular human behavior that I absolutely loathe more than anything is complaining. I mean, I really, really hate it when I'm surrounded by people who are constantly complaining, which kind of sucks to be me right now because I'm a father of four young children. And that seems to be the constant behavior that I'm surrounded by over and over. Complain, complain, complain. I'm always surrounded by complaining, and it really rubs me the wrong way. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that complaining is inherently wrong or sinful. There are times in life where it is necessary to complain, where it is justified to complain, where the necessity of the situation requires for complaint, right? But I'm speaking of a specific species of complaining that I think is abhorrent to God and really to everyone else. And that is the kind of complaining where people are always upset about a situation that they don't have to be in and hence not have to complain about, but yet for some odd reason, they choose to stay in the situation and therefore keep on complaining. For example, some people that I know constantly complain about how out of shape they are, how overweight they are. They're like, oh my goodness, I can't fit into my pants anymore. Oh, these jeans, I used to wear them three months ago and I can't fit all. They're always complaining about how out of shape, how overweight they are, and yet they do nothing to go on a diet, to cut their portions in half, to go to the gym, to start working out, right? All they do, oh, I'm just so fat, right? Or other people, usually the single brothers of the kind, will say, man, I'm so sick and tired of being single. All my friends in relationships, all my friends getting married, how come all the ladies keep ignoring me, right? And they always complain about how the universe is against them and that no lady is willing to give them the time of day, and yet when the opportunity arises for a beautiful, God-fearing woman to be asked out on a date, you approach this brother, hey, what about her? Like, nah, pass. Meanwhile, they keep complaining, oh, I'm still single. And then there's some of the young professionals that are in this room. One of the things that you have a problem with is that you can always complain about work. 
How come management doesn't pay attention to me? How come I'm not getting the raise? How come I'm not getting the promotion? How come I'm not getting the titles that I feel entitled to? Meanwhile, the opportunity arises to take on that extra project, to help out that teammate, or to put in some extra hours so that you can show management to where you are warranted in getting that promotion, getting that raise, getting that title, and you go, eh, now I'm going to go home and watch TV so that you can complain about how you're still middle management, right? Complaint, complaint, complaint. In the days of the medieval church, they actually referred to this kind of behavior as a specific thing. They had a term for it. You know what that term was? Sloth. Sloth. And for those of you who aren't aware, it was one of the seven deadly sins. One of the seven deadly sins. And given that we are a community of Christians, and furthermore, given that we are called not to sin as Christians, you would think that we would be the last people on the earth that would commit this kind of behavior known as sloth. But alas, that is not to be the case. Because one of the things that Christians are notorious of, that I am personal witness to, is that we have a tendency to always complain all the time in situations that we don't have to be in and hence no longer complain of. And I'm thinking of a specific issue, and that is the issue of belonging. This issue of being part of the church, being part of the community. I cannot tell you over the years of pastoring this church, which is almost nine years now, can you believe it? Almost a decade of being a pastor here, where I've run into a wide variety of Christians who've had one singular complaint over and over that outweighs all the other complaints that I've received, and that is, oh, Pastor John, NCF doesn't feel like a place where I belong. It's not a place where I feel like it's my church. I don't feel like this is my community. Now, given with my ridiculous tone, you're probably thinking that I am a little bit annoyed by this kind of complaint, and you're right. I am annoyed. And the reason why I am annoyed is because of the fact that the basis of this complaint, that this church is not a place where you can belong, is unfounded. And why do I believe that? Because the Bible clearly teaches that if you have a personal faith in Jesus Christ, that if you are a genuine follower of Jesus, that you are a member of his body. You are a member of his church. You are his family. You belong to the church. Not you could belong or you can belong. You do belong, okay? And if you've been worshiping with us and only us for the past year, sorry to say it, folks, this is your church. This is where you belong. This is your community. You see, Christian, the reason why this is your community is not because you do anything to make sure that you fit in or you belong. And it's not because anything that we do as a church that makes you fit in and you belong. Do you know why you belong here? It's because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. By the shedding of his blood, by virtue of him shedding his blood for you, that has ensured you a place of belonging here in this body. Just like your mommy shed blood for you as she pushed you out into the world, that shedding of blood for you by virtue made you a member of her family. By the shedding of Christ's blood, You are a member of his family, and if this has been your only church context, then this is your family, period, period. Now, it is true that just because you are a part of a family doesn't mean you're always going to feel like your family, right? That is true, and what that means is families need to be intentional with one another in order for families to feel like what they are, and that same idea is true when it comes to the church family as well. We as a church need to be intentional so that we can feel like what we are, that we are people who belong to each other, that we are community, that we are family. And as we take a look at our passage, it's going to teach us what we can do to ensure that we belong to one another. And the way I'm going to describe it is by following the routine of God's family. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today. First, let's talk about the routine of God's family. Number two, why we neglect the routine of God's family. And finally, how to begin the routine of God's family. The routine of God's family, why we don't follow it, and how we can start following it. Okay, let's jump right in. First, the routine of God's family. You know, one of the recurring messages that we hear from child health experts is that families, specifically children, in order for them to thrive in a family, they need routines in a family. For example, the healthychildren.org website, which is created by the American Academy of Pediatrics, it says this about routines. Listen to what it says. Every family needs routines. They help to organize life and keep it from becoming too chaotic. Children do best when routines are regular, predictable, and consistent. It turns out having consistent 
family routines is the pathway for a family to flourish. And guess what? That same principle also applies when it comes to the church family. Let's have our passage up for just a moment. And take a look specifically in verse 42 and focus on that word that's embedded right in the middle of verse 42. And I'm thinking of the word fellowship. The word fellowship. Now, for those of us who grew up in the church, we're very familiar with that term. In fact, we loosely use it all the time when we're gathered together, right? Hey, what are you doing after church today? Uh, me and so-and-so, we're going to go to Flushing. We're going to have some sweet fellowship, man. Hey, what would you do Friday night? Oh, man, me and Sam and Nina, we, we hung out and we had some awesome fellowship, right? We use that term all the time, right? Fellowship, fellowship. But what does it actually mean? Well, simply put, to fellowship simply means to belong. To belong is to fellowship. When you fellowship with someone, you are conveying to that person that you're fellowshipping with, hey, I belong to you, you belong to me, we belong together because what? We are family. And according to our passage, there are four things that you need, specifically four categories of experiences that you need to routinely have with the people in your church family in order for it to feel like what you are, that you are indeed a family. And those four things are as follows. Number one, you must be enjoying a transcendent experience together. Number two, you need to be meeting a dire need together. Number three, you need to be committed to a person's development together. And finally, number four, you need to be sharing intimate vulnerabilities together. Okay, let's quickly go through it. Number one, first we must be enjoying, in order to become a community that we are, enjoy a transcendent experience together. Read again if we could have our passage with me. Verse 43, listen again to what it says. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Notice what's being described here. What is being described? I'll tell you what's being described. The early church in the days of the book of Acts are experiencing Oh, they're experiencing some transcendent thing that is so amazing and so awe-inspiring that it's, that it's bringing them together in such a way because they're enjoying this awesome transcendent experience that they cannot manufacture on their own as individuals, right? They are experiencing something so awesome that it's making them feel so reverential, so filled with wonder that this experience that's so above them is bringing them together. And if you think about it, you know this happens all the time, even outside the church. For example, let's say, for some odd reason, that you are a Yankee fan. Okay, let's just say, just for argument's sake, right, that you are a Yankee fan. Don't get offended, guys. Please don't email me tonight, all right? But let's just say you are a Yankee fan, and you go to Yankee Stadium. Why? Because the Yankees made it to the World Series, right? And you go to Yankee Stadium, and you sit right next to a complete random stranger. You don't know who this is sitting next to you, but one thing you do know by the paraphernalia he's wearing, by the way that they're cheering like you're cheering, that person's a Yankee fan. And let's say this game is tense, and it doesn't seem like the Yankees are going to win, right? But of course the Yankees always win, right? And they do win, and they're one game away from winning the World Series, and at that moment you jump up as well as this stranger, you give this person a massive bear hug, and to your surprise, well not really, they give you another bear hug in return. They, they return the courtesy of embrace, right? Let me ask you. Let's say you walked into this stranger in a separate setting, right? And you just walked up to him and just give him a bear hug. You think he's going to return the bear hug back? Probably, he's probably going to, like, do all this weird MMA stuff that all these guys seem to know these days, right? Why? You see, there's something about enjoying an experience that goes beyond your own individual ability to manufacture that if you share with someone is so awe-inspiring to where you get so caught up in something so transcendent that anyone who shares that experience is with you, all of a sudden you feel a connection that you would never feel outside of that kind of setting, right? That is what happens when you enjoy an experience of transcendence with somebody else and they're experiencing it right alongside with you, whether it's a Knicks game, a Mets game, a Yankees game, right? Whether it's an MMA fight, hopefully not that. It just brings people together who are complete strangers in such a way because they feel such a connection by this common enjoyment of a transcendent experience. That's the first thing you need. You need to enjoy a transcendent experience together. But then you need the second thing, right? which is meeting a dire need together. Read again the first half of verse 46. Listen to what it says. And day by day, they were attending the temple together. It says here that the early church went to the temple every day. Why? Why did they go to the Jewish temple every day? Well, 
New Testament scholars tell us that the behavior that these guys are exhibiting is that of evangelism. These guys are going to the temple every day to evangelize to other Jews because the early church Christians predominantly were Jews. You see, in the days of the early church, the Jewish temple had two prayer services every day, one in the morning and one in the afternoon around 3 p.m. And many of these Jewish Christians would go every day to minister and to evangelize to their fellow Jews, telling them that the Messiah had come. He is here. He's Jesus Christ. And they did it every day because for them, as it should be for us, they felt that the most important thing that a human being needs is to know Jesus. For people who don't know Jesus, to know Jesus is for them the greatest need a human being has. And guess what, Christian? That should be our perspective as well. The most dire need a human being has is to be saved from their sins and to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And here's the thing. These Christians were doing it together every day. They came together in groups to reach out to their various social networks, which we call oikos. And as a group, they were on this mission to save those who were in dire need, people who needed to hear Jesus. And of course, this principle applies in other settings as well. When groups come together for the purpose to go on a mission to help people who are in danger, it brings people together in such a way that no other activity can sometimes. Do you ever wonder why people who go and fight in wars together and they come out of it, they're called blood brothers? Have you ever heard that term before? Blood brothers or band of brothers, right? Because as people come together, complete strangers, to fight in a war, to save those who are in danger, to save a people from a political tyrant, right? They come out of it feeling like, not that they're friends, not that they're acquaintance, but we're brothers, right? You know the first Avengers movie? Remember how it starts off? You have Tony Stark, Iron Man, you have Captain America, you have the Hulk, you have Thor. They all start off as so antagonistic towards each other. They don't like each other, right? They rub each other the wrong way. But then they save the world, and at the end of the movie, what are they doing? They're eating shawarmas together in New York City. They're bonded. There's something about coming together and helping a dire need, helping a group of people in a dire need, that all of a sudden it created bonds of fellowship that was not there before. The second thing you need in order for the church family to feel like what it is, is that we need to come together to meet a dire need together, okay? The third thing you need in order to have a sense of belonging is having a commitment to the personal development of the people in the group that you're in, in fellowship, in the context of church, Read again the second half of verse 46. And breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. What are these Christians doing? They're eating together. They're feeding each other, right? They're constantly eating and feeding and and enjoying meals together. Now, you're thinking, oh, Pastor John, our church got this down. Down pat. We're always eating together. You can go on our Facebook. We're always hanging out with people at church. We're always hanging out in the city. We're always in flesh. We're always eating, eating, eating. We got this down. Well, maybe, maybe not. Because this verse is simply not saying that the only thing you guys have to do is just eat together. There's a deeper meaning in that statement, okay? There's something more than just eating. There's a deeper meaning that's being conveyed by that act. And what is it? Well, let me give you a personal illustration to explain. You know, as a father, one of the most stressful things that I have is dealing with my kids and their fickle appetite, in particular my son Judah. He is such a picky eater to the point that it just annoys the heck out of me and his mom. You know, his mom works very hard to provide good, healthy, nourishing meals, and for some reason, my kid, my boy, he'll pick at it, eat a couple bites, and like clockwork, after the fifth bite, he's like, Appa, Daddy, my stomach hurts. Right? For those of you parents, you have, have a child like that? My stomach hurts, right? And I get so fed up. I get so stressed out to the point where I just look at him like, boy, you better eat, right? I'm willing to confront him, right? We're ready to have conflict if this kid does not eat. Why? Because I'm so committed to this boy's flourishing, which means what? When he does eat, those very minor moments when he actually starts eating and starts to do, I feel so joyful, right? Because he's actually flourishing. He's generously receiving, eating what I'm giving him. And what he's communicating to me as he's eating is what? I am accepting, Daddy, your commitment to me to flourish as a human being, right? And that's the same concept here when they're generously receiving what people are feeding them. They're saying, I'm giving you permission to be committed to my success, to my flourishment, to the point where I'm even giving you permission to get in my face if I do anything that messes up my own life. 
right? Sometimes, one of the best ways that you can show to somebody that they belong in your life is when you care enough to get in their face when they're living their life in such a stupid way that it's hurting them, which conversely means there's no other moment where you're more rejoicing and more celebratory when a person in your life is flourishing and you're helping them to flourish more and more, right? There's something about people who are willing to care enough about you to get in your face when you're not flourishing and you're self-sabotaging yourself, as well as when someone cares enough about you to where they're willing to help you to get to the next level of growth, next level of development, that it creates a bond of fellowship that is unlike any other, right? We see this all the time. Now, this leads us to the fourth and final thing that we need, that we need to routinely experience as a church family to be a family. And that is that last phrase in verse 42, the prayers, the prayers. Now, the context makes it clear. These are not silent, you know, unspoken prayers that people are just praying silently in their head in some obscure corner of the sanctuary. No, the context makes it clear that these are intercessory prayers. These are people asking for prayer on these issues. There are people praying for one another. In other words, there are people in the church coming together and they're divulging their most secret, most embarrassing, most vulnerable secrets about their lives so that people can pray for them. You know, back in the days of the early church, they had no such thing as support groups. There was no such thing as Alcoholics Anonymous. There was no Sexaholics Anonymous. There was no Gamblings Anonymous, no Narcotics Anonymous. The only thing they had that was remotely like a support group were the prayer groups they had in the early church, right? Tiny groups made up of maybe two, three, maybe four people at most coming together and sharing the most darkest, most embarrassing, most deepest secrets in the hopes that as they share, they can ask prayer. So through the power of prayer for one another, they are free from addictions. They are free from psychological issues. They are free from guilt and shame, right? See, even the act of sharing your darkest and most intimate struggles has the ability of bringing such a bond of connection. This is why for people who get counseling and they get counseling for prolonged periods of time with one counselor, what happens? Attachment, right? For those of you who studied psych, you know what that term is, attachments, where the counselee develops strong feelings of attachment to the counselor, Right? And all the textbooks say that you really can't avoid it. If you go into counseling, you can't avoid it. It's just going to happen because the dynamic of when someone shares with you that secret of theirs, it creates a bond of trust. And what is a bond of trust? It's a bond, right? That bond shows there's connection. There's something about sharing your most intimate vulnerabilities that by nature creates a dynamic of a bond, that creates a connection that is simply unavoidable. So there it is, the four things, the four routines that God's family needs to routinely experience together in order for the family to feel like a family. Number one, we need to enjoy a transcendent experience together. Number two, we need to meet a dire need together. Number three, we need to be committed to a person's development together, and we need to share intimate vulnerabilities together. Now, at this point, I am willing to bet that most, maybe all of you, have hardly experienced these four things, maybe one, maybe two, right? But for the most part, I'm willing to bet most of us in here have not experienced these routines. In fact, I would even go so far that most churches in America have not experienced these routines. And the question is why? Because clearly with the level of complaint I'm always hearing and all the pastors are hearing across the country, we want this community, we demand it, and yet we neglect it We never create the context or we never participate it when the context is available. Why? The answer leads me to my next point. Why we neglect the routine of God's family. Skip down to the middle of our passage and let's read verse 44 and 45 again, which reads as follows. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, you know, this passage is very dangerous for you you know, young college Christians, because, you know, college students are so idealistic, right? And they're like, oh, my goodness, you know, we should be radical and sell everything, you know, let's live the communist Marxist lifestyle because the book of Acts endorses it, right? Because when you read those verses, it almost sounds like the early church practiced some primitive form of communism, as if the early church was part of, like, some cult-like commune. But we know that's not the case. And how do we know that? Because if we go to verse 46, it says clearly, excuse me, 
In verse 46, it says that people were also meeting in what? People's homes, right? Turns out there were people who still had private property. They had homes where they had people fellowshipping in their homes and breaking bread, okay? So these two verses are not in any way advocating that churches, in order to be a real church, that we need to sell everything and just live like a communist little, you know, cult-like, you know, compound. That's not what it's saying. So what is it saying? Simply put, it's saying we are to have a certain mindset of ourselves as it is reflected to how we view our possessions. Again, these two verses, 44 and 45, are trying to teach us the kind of mindset we are to have of ourselves as it's reflected in our attitude towards our possessions. And to explain, let me read to you this quote from Pastor James Boyce as he reflects on these verses. He says this, quote, The world says, what's mine is mine, and what's yours is mine if I can get it. The Christian says, I have nothing but what I have first received from God, and therefore I am only a steward of my possessions. What's mine is yours if you have need of it. Notice how Dr. Boyce describes the mindset a Christian should have, which is what? We either have the mindset of a steward, right? A steward. Now, what is a steward? Simply put, a steward is someone who recognizes that they are not the master, that they are not the king. If you look up a thesaurus, you know what a thesaurus is, right? If you look up the word steward in a thesaurus and you look up specifically the antonyms, the opposite word that mean the opposite thing of the word, right? You find words like master, chief, kingpin, right? Someone who is inherently superior than those around them, okay? In fact, Dr. Boyce quotes at the beginning of that quote, the opposite mindset of a steward. It's the mindset that says what's mine is mine, but also what's yours is mine, right? You see, a steward has a mindset that says, I'm no better than anyone, and I'm not entitled to anything, even the things that I possess. Therefore, if you need it, you can use it, right? The opposite mindset of a steward that says, I am better than everyone, and I'm entitled to everything, even the things that you have. In fact, I'm more entitled to have it than you are entitled to have your own stuff, right? That's the mindset. And it's because of this mindset that the author is saying, this is why the church is not together. This is why the church does not feel what it is, why there's no sense of belonging in the church. Because instead of having the mindset of a steward, most of the people in the church back then and even today, we have the opposite mindset of a steward. We have this mindset of superiority. And because of this superiority complex, we neglect and we don't even bother with the routines that we need to constantly experience in order to come together. A theologian by the name of Steve Mackey, who teaches up at Gordon-Conwell, where I got my second master's, he wrote a book entitled Becoming a Healthy Church. And listen to what he says as he describes the condition of the church in America. He writes this, quote, In the church today, we live in a narcissistic age, a period of history marked by self-centeredness and relational challenges. The world around us promotes values that pull us further into ourselves and further apart from one another. The narcissistic personality traits are evident in many who sit in our congregations. Wow. What is Dr. Machia saying? He's saying the reason why churches, including ours, don't feel like we belong, why we're not the kind of community that we should be, is because so many of us, and I point to myself as well, we've adopted the narcissistic personality that's so pervasive in our culture today. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with these psychological terminologies, and you're not familiar with this notion of a narcissistic personality, let me read to you a description of the narcissistic personality. This comes from a Princeton professor of psychology by the name of Donald Clapp. And as I read to it, ask yourself, is this describing me in any way? Listen to what he says. A narcissistic personality can be described as having an exaggerated or grandiose sense of self-importance, as having a remarkable absence of interest in and empathy for other persons, as eager to obtain admiration and approval of others, as entertaining fantasies of unrealistic goals, as lacking emotional depth and unwilling or unable to understand the complex emotions of other people, as angry and resentful but often can't concealing such resentment beneath depressive moods, as deficient of genuine feelings of sadness and compassion, as cold and indifferent, icy and unresponsive, as manipulative, exploitive, and unprincipled, as having strong feelings of insecurity and inferiority alternating, but in no predictable pattern, with feelings of greatness and omnipotent fantasies, 
and as lacking enthusiasm and joy in the pursuit of goals, but reflecting instead a driven, pleasureless approach to goals, which are fueled by an insatiable ambition. Interpersonal relationships are extremely unstable due to a tendency either to over-idealize or to devalue a relationship on an alternating basis. The other is expected to respond to one's desires and wants, but has no right to expect similar treatment in return. Wow. Feeling a little uncomfortable? Kind of like when you look at a selfie picture you just took of yourself in a cell phone and you don't like what you see uncomfortable, right? I know I did when I read this. See, it's because of this pervasive narcissistic personality that's so pervasive out there that we bring into our own hearts and therefore bring into the church that we neglect the routines that would bring us together that would enable us to live out what we are by what Jesus purchased for us on the cross through the shedding of his blood. I mean, think about it for a moment. If you think you have an exaggerated or grandiose sense of self-importance, you're not going to enjoy a transcendent experience with other people. If anything, you'll enjoy a transcendent experience by yourself. You know, what do the rich and powerful do when they go to a game? Do they sit in the stands with all the other fans cheering, being a part of that, that collective energy? No. They have that private little capsule box seat that's hermetically sealed from everyone else and they just watch the game in the privacy of their own box, right? Or when they go to a a massive superstar concert, do they sit in the stands with the other fans and just absorbing and participating in this collective powerful energy of transcendence? No. They go to the back VIP section, right? The backstage pass and watch the concert on a screen. Why? Because for them to experience a transcendent experience, to enjoy it, It's not for the purpose of connecting with other people. No, it's to enjoy it as a projection of how they feel about themselves, how they see themselves, right? This performance, this experience, it's all about me. I'm the only real audience that this experience is for because I'm the transcendent one. I should have this private box office seat. I should have the VIP access where it's only for me and for my exclusive few that I choose to invite, right? It's all about me, right? It's not about connecting to anyone, right? Or think about it, if you have a remarkable absence of interest in or empathy of other people, are you going to be concerned about needs that they have, needs that are dire? Probably not, because when you have this narcissistic mindset, the only need that you can think of are your own needs, and basically the need basically boils down to, I need to show the world that I'm as important as I think I am, and I'm so frustrated that people don't get it. Why aren't people seeing the obvious that how awesome I am? And so you are so consumed. So what if there are children being sold into sex trafficking? So what if people are suffering and dying over simple things that could be remedied, like having clean water? The most important priority is I need to convince the world what I know is true. I am important, right? Or how about this? If you have constant fantasies of accomplishing unrealistic goals, you're not going to fixate on helping other people reach goals that they could realistically meet because you're constantly fantasizing as you're driving to work or on the train, "Mm, maybe one day I can speak multiple language and speak in front of the UN. Maybe I can be a black belt in Thai boxing and jujitsu. You're just coming up with some ridiculous goals in your mind that you know will never happen. Meanwhile, you're spending all that emotional and mental energy that you could use to help other people reach goals that they could really need if you're only willing to give some time and effort and support and encouragement, right? How many of you guys are not guilty of that? You know, you're sitting on a train and you start, your mind starts wandering and you think you're going to be like pitching for the Yankees or something, right? That's a sign of narcissism, folks. Things that you know you'll never be able to do or you imagine yourself in some scene in some K-drama that's never going to happen, but yet you get so emotionally invested into it. That's a sign of narcissism, and it's also the thing that's blocking you from getting connected with people that you're called to be connected to. Or how about the final thing? If you're unwilling or unable to understand the complex emotions of other people to where you're cold and indifferent, you're not going to be available to people, and you're certainly not going to be willing to bear the burdens that they give to you to share as they confess their deepest struggles and vulnerabilities. If anything, you're like, man, you're so annoying. Why are you such a loser? Can you just get your act together? Why are you dumping all your garbage on me? I don't want to hear it, right? If you want to know why so many churches, if you want to know why maybe sometimes this church doesn't feel like you belong, that it's not a place where you fit in, 
that this isn't your community, this isn't your family, even though the Bible says it is, could be because of the person that you look at in the mirror. Or maybe a more apt way of putting it, because you're looking at the person in the mirror too much, like narcissists did. The story, right? So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, if the greatest hindrance, right, of course there are other hindrances, but if the greatest hindrance of why I don't feel like what is true about me in this community is because of me, what do I do about that? What can be done about that? And this leads me to my final point, how to begin the routine of God's family. Let's go back and read, read verse 44 and 45, but pay special attention to how verse 44 begins. It says this, And all who believed were together, and all had things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Interesting. The way we avoid developing the narcissistic personality and hence have the mindset of a steward, right, to where we become a community is by first believing something. We have to believe something, according to verse 44. And if you go up to verse 42, it tells us exactly what we need to believe. What do we need to believe? We need to believe the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. Now, what in the world is the apostles' teaching? Well, notice, it doesn't say apostles' teachings, plural, but one singular teaching. The apostle teaching. If you ever read through the New Testament, the apostles taught us a lot of things, right? Doctrines to believe, commands to obey, promises to claim. But all of these teachings can be subsumed under one main teaching. And the Apostle Paul tells us what that one teaching teaching is in the book of Acts chapter 20. Listen to what it says starting in verse 18. This is Paul talking to the Ephesian elders. You know from that day I set foot in the province of Asia until now. I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I have endured the trials that come to me from the plots of the Jews. I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear either publicly or in your homes. And I have had one message for Jews and Greeks alike. One teaching. The necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and of having faith in our Lord Jesus. The main teaching of the apostles was the gospel. Out of all the doctrines that we're to believe, out of all the promises we're to claim, out of all the commands we're to obey, all of that stems from the one teaching, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the apostles' Now you think, well, wait a minute, how does believing in the gospel, you know, Jesus Christ came and died on the cross as my savior substitute, how does believing that get rid of my narcissism? Well, Paul, again, is helpful to us, but this time we have to go to Philippians chapter 2. Listen to what he says there, starting in verse 5. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is Paul describing here? He's describing the mindset of Jesus when he went to the cross for you as your Savior substitute. What was his mindset? He was a slave. He was a steward. He was someone who though by nature is far superior to anyone and everyone, who is by nature the most important person of all, his mindset when he came to earth is, I am the most inferior person. I am the servant of all. I am the steward of all. Think about it. Jesus Christ is the only one who could really say legitimately, what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine, right? Jesus can really say that. And he's not being narcissistic by saying that. He can actually say, hey, what's mine is mine. What's yours, your children, your money, your life, that's mine, right? And I'm more entitled to those things than you are entitled to those things. Those are all mine. That's who he is. But that's not what he did, right? When he came to earth, what did he behave as? When he lived a life of humility and shame that ultimately culminated in his death on the cross, he said, what's mine is yours if you need it. That's what he said in his actions on the cross. Question, what did Jesus have that we desperately needed? What did Jesus have? 
that he gave to us that we desperately needed. He gave us God. He gave us his Father. He gave us God. And here's the thing, folks. When you have God, right? When you have God, you have the one thing that brings all of those four experiences that I talked about in my first point all together, right? I mean, think about it for just a moment. Let's say, let's go back to that Yankee illustration. Let's say, you know, after the game, you had a bear hug. Maybe you shared a beer with a guy because you just continue to relish the, the victory. Do you think after you have that beer or while you're having that beer, you're going to start confessing your deepest, most intimate secrets at that moment? No, right? It's inappropriate. Or if you're getting counseling from a counselor, right, and you're sharing your most intimate secrets, are you going to say, hey, you know what? Let's go to a Mets game, right? She's so like, I don't even like the Mets. What are you talking about? I like the Yankees, right? It's inappropriate. You see, you can experience these four categories of belonging outside of the church all the time, right? You can have an experience of transcendence. You can have a mission of meeting a need, but you're all going to experience it in isolation from one another. There's no connection. But in God, you can have all of those four experiences together to where it multiplies the sense of belonging in a way that you will have a sense of belonging in the community of the church that you will never have outside of the church, Right? Think about it. Who is God? God is the transcendent one. He literally is the transcendent one to where when you experience him, you have awe and you enjoy his presence, right? Which means other Christians who share that same experience, you're together. But you know what? That same group of Christians experience God another way. Who is God? He is the great provider to where he's willing to provide for every need, including the greatest need that we have, salvation from our sins, to where with those same group of Christians that you just worship with, you also have another commonality. You just experience together, not only God is your transcendent one, but God is a great provider, meeting all of your need, your direst need most of all. And not only that, you experience God as what? The committed one, the one who is so committed for your sanctification, where Paul says that I am convinced that God will complete the work that he started till the day of Christ Jesus, right? So as you struggle with sin, he forgives you. You struggle with sin, he forgives you. Every time he forgives you so that you learn a little bit more about yourself and your weaknesses so that you can become stronger and more godlike and more mature and developed. You share that with other Christians. And then you also experience God as what? As the great listening one. Where you can confess your darkest and deepest sins that you can't even confess to your best friends. And you know he's still listening. He's not going to reject you. He's not going to turn away from you because of what Jesus has done. You experience God in all of these four categories of belonging. And when you have that with other Christians, do you not see how it creates a bond, a fellowship that you will never experience with some random fellow fan of some favorite sport of yours? Not with some intimate counselor that you have. Not with some group of people that you fight in the war with. The belonging that happens in the church is unrepeatable because it begins with the gospel, because it's in the gospel that you find the one God who brings all of these experiences of belonging together. Do you see that? It's always back to the gospel. And what happens when these things come together and coalesce? Verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The church grows. The church grows. And as the church grows, the world is better off. Because as the church grows, you have less people who are narcissistic and more people who are like stewards. In other words, more people who are like Jesus. And the more people in this world who are like Jesus, the better off this world is. Here's my question. Do you get that? Do you believe that? At this time, I want to invite you to spend some time reflecting on what today's message was about. And to facilitate that, I invite you just to close your eyes and get into a prayerful mindset. And I really want to ask you this question. Brother, sister, have you struggled to get a sense of belonging here at NCF? Have you struggled to get a sense of belonging here at NCF? And I'm sure you have. And I'm sure that the most common response to that frustration is, NCF is the problem. The people of this church is the problem. Maybe we are. I'm not denying it. 
Maybe the church is not as welcoming as it could be. Maybe the church is a little too cold. But could it be that there is another factor that is just as or bigger than those issues? Could it be that the reason why you don't have a sense of belonging here is that you have not committed to the routine of God's family? And the reason why you have not committed to the routine of God's family is because you're not seeing yourself as a steward, but rather you're seeing yourself as the complete opposite of a steward. I invite you now to spend some time in honest reflection and prayer. Let's pray together. Father, as we think about what we have heard this morning, oh God, would you challenge us to face some things about ourselves that we need to face? Lord, let it begin with this one truth, that we look at ourselves way too much, that we fixate upon ourselves. Like the great mythical story of Narcissist, so enamored by his own reflection that he forgot about everyone else. Father, we have an epidemic in our community. And it's a problem that only you can fix. And we pray, Jesus, that the face that we long to look forward into staring into is not our own, but to the one who shines his face upon us. The one who is our hope. The one who is the truest beauty. The one who is the glorious one, the one who is so transcendent, the one who is so committed to us, the one who met our greatest need, the one who hears our confessions and never turns away. God, we need you to teach us once again about who our Jesus is so that when the routines are available in our community, whether it be in the context of glorious corporate worship as we experience your transcendence, whether it's the gathering of fellow believers and community group going on missions together to share their faith in their various oikos, whether it's a commitment of a community group coming together and to really help each other to grow and to develop, whether it's a gathering of just a few so that they can confess and pray together. Lord, may it begin by us first embracing the fundamental prerequisite of all those things. That is our faith in the gospel. Would you give it to us now? For we're incapable of manufacturing it on our own. We're so desperate for your grace. Would you hear us and bless us? For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people together said, amen. We're not going to give God his tithes and our offering. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give. But if you are a member of this body, let's give to God what is rightfully his, his tithes and our offerings.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, gathering us this morning, Lord, to humbly worship with you as a congregation, as a collective. Father, we heard a message um, to convict us of our own spirits and our own hearts' conditions, Father, that where we uh, place blame on this community, where we placed blame on other people um, to say, uh, to justify our own negligence of our own service to you and your, your people and your church, Father. Um, we pray that this uh, message will continue to convict us over the week, that we will, con- uh, that we will express dire need um, for fellowship, that fellowship within congregation and outside of its walls. Um, it's, not an, it's not an accessory, but it's a necessity, Father, that we cannot survive without our fellow brothers and sisters to uphold us during the week, because how else can we then stand against the world's enemies, Lord? How else can we stay protected from... Um, our own morals, our own ethics, our own sense of um, identity becoming ruined by what the world is always pushing on us. So, Father, we pray that we will continue to um, indulge and and um, rely on our fellow brothers and sisters' um, uh, relationships and prayers. Lord, um, we pray for those in this congregations and, and congregation and those outside of these walls, Father, who we know are brokenhearted, who we know are downcast, who we know are just oppressed by so much struggle and, no, and their backs are against the walls where they don't even know where to turn for an answer. We pray for those who are on the sidelines where no one is even keeping an eye on how hard things are for them and that they are suffering on their own. We pray, Father, that you will come to their aid. You will provide mercy. You will provide grace. You will um, shelter them from the pain for the moment so that you will show them a a day of of refuge and release. Father, you are a rock. You are a shelter. There is nothing else that we could stand on that's on firmer ground, and we recognize that. So we pray for forgiveness where we have thought that we can rely on ourselves or we can rely on the strength of of horses' strength, um, of chariots, um, power other than your word, Father. We rely on you. So we pray um, for the rest of the week. We pray for the leaders um, as they're continuing to navigate some of this murky water in terms of how the future of this church will go. We pray for divine intuition that will be uh, given and anointed to the leaders, Father, and that they will take this um, understanding from you and this peace in their hearts as they are anxious into navigating, Father, but that they will always remain vigilant and sensitive to the congregation where there is um, hesitation, where there is doubt, that they will um, stay broken, Father, before you, but also relaying to the conversa- uh, congregation and staying transparent as leaders. Um, we pray for the rest of the week, Father. We pray that you will continue to walk with us and that you will continue to have this message impressed upon our hearts. We pray all this in your name. Amen.